This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The hit musical Hamilton comes to Denver this month. Getting a ticket was no easy feat, as many of you experienced last month when tens of thousands tried their luck. I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. You know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not thrown away my shot. We experienced this ticket frustration for ourselves. Several of us logged onto the Denver Center's website at 9 a.m. to get into a virtual waiting room where you were randomly assigned a number. One colleague ended up 146,484th in line to buy tickets. By mid-afternoon, no tickets were left. But pretty much as soon as the Denver Center sale ended, you could find tickets on resale sites, some going for more than $2,000. That actually violates the Denver Center's ticketing policy, which says tickets can't be resold above face value. The Denver Center took some new steps with Hamilton to squash scalping. They have spent weeks analyzing each and every transaction. If they find a sale that violated their policy, they will cancel it. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf is digging into this. Hi, Steph. Hey, Ryan. Uh, the Denver Center is trying to filter out ticket brokers, people buying up tickets to resell them for a profit on sites like Craigslist, StubHub, eBay. What exactly have they been looking for as they examine each sale? So I visited the Denver Center recently to meet with Giovanni Pina. He's the vice president of information technology, and he's really reluctant to share too much about his process. Oh. Walking you through the process might give away some of the techniques that we use uh, that might make it easier for the brokers to say, got it, now I know what you're looking for, so I'm going to vary my my behavior. Um, we're collaboratively looking at different angles, different lenses, different behaviors uh, that might identify a, a, a transaction as suspicious, and then we make the decision, yes, this is a valid purchase, honored, or we'll take steps to unsell that ticket. Okay, such sleuthing involved. How much could he reveal, though? So Pina has this team of people from the IT department in the box office. They really were going through each and every transaction to verify it. During the actual sale window last month, his team looked at things that might be suspicious. Maybe traffic was coming from somewhere that seemed fishy. And then after that, they began the evaluation of each sale. This is really actually part of DCPA's practice. But go online online right now, Ryan, and you know search for some Denver Hamilton tickets. Yeah, I tried this. There were a lot for sale. How are they policing that resale market? You know, it wasn't clear to me how much they look at these listings specifically, but Pina said their investigation goes beyond a sale itself. We use information and data from other sources to make the decisions whether uh, the transaction was legitimate and we'll honor it or whether we need to take alternative action based on our policies. So again, he didn't want to give many specifics, but said that they've determined if they determine you violate their policy, they have the right to, quote, unsell those tickets. And a quick side note. Yeah. So there's a state there's no statewide law on scalping in Colorado, but in some cities like Denver, scalping is illegal. So within the city limits, selling tickets at a premium or selling a ticket to someone you know to be scalping That's illegal. This doesn't apply to tickets bought over the Internet, but an attorney told me that Craigslist, it gets a bit murky when it comes to this law. So while the agreement of a transaction may occur online, in the case of Craigslist, the exchange sometimes happens in person. So you could be breaking the law in some cities. I see, because that Internet transaction becomes a physical one. Mm -hmm. So the Denver Center used a virtual waiting room called Cue It for this public sale. 
Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you logged on between like 9 and 10, got a number that became your place in line to buy tickets. Why did they use the virtual waiting room? This is actually their newest tool and their anti-scalping tool belt. Pina told me one reason they used it was to help control the large flow of users so their systems wouldn't be overwhelmed. He also said it puts another obstacle in front of bots. Right, bots, those computer programs that can nab a bunch of tickets at much faster rates than a person. What does the virtual waiting room have to do with bots? Uh, so they, this is a randomized number. It's a randomized process. And Pina says that keeps bots from potentially getting those first spots in line. Hmm. And if bots are scattered throughout, it may be easier to identify them. Now, there was this concern that something like Qit could be hacked, but Pina said they didn't see that during the Hamilton ticket rush. Has the Denver Center reclaimed any tickets it deemed uh, ill-gotten? A DCPA spokesperson told me they have found some customers in violations of their policies and that any canceled seats, those will be made available closer to the show's opening. How are other venues handling public ticket sales for the first U.S. tour of Hamilton? I reached out to Blumenthal Arts Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hamilton doesn't make a stop there until the fall. And the Arts Center has been watching how venues like Denver Center has handled their sales. But even before then, this venue has taken some extraordinary measures to fight scalpers. Like what? Well, like the Denver Center, they've really pushed this message to buy only from them. So Blumenthal Arts Center made a PSA, and they're sort of trying to scare people into this. There's this one character, Jimmy, who, you know, he types the he just types the event into a search and clicks on the, quote, wrong link. Jimmy didn't get event updates or special offers for tickets. Jimmy did not receive the best seats at the best price. Jimmy's tickets may not even be real. Poor Jimmy. But way to go, <laughs> Poor Jimmy. Yeah, poor Jimmy. So the folks in Charlotte also search their databases daily looking for anything suspicious. And get this. They sometimes buy tickets listed on resale sites. They look at the seat number and the show date. They void that sale in their system because then they can find it in their system Contact the credit card company to report the ticket was ill-gotten and has no value. Freeze the ticket back up to the public. CEO Tom Gabbard says it's working. We usually find that once people understand our policy, they give up on us because we're kind of a pain in the butt. <laughs> and that's what we want them to know is that, is that we are serious about it. Okay, so that's the view from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, There are reports that scalpers are getting rich off the Broadway run of Hamilton. Mm -hmm. Hamilton opened on Broadway in 2015. And this is a show that moved New York Times theater critic Ben Brantley to write, quote, I am loath to tell people to mortgage their houses and lease their children to acquire a ticket to a hit Broadway show. But Hamilton might just be about worth (laughs) it. And people have really shown they're willing to pay big bucks for these tickets. Really across the board, plays, concerts, etc. It's estimated that the resale market brings in more money than the primary ticket market. That means ticket brokers could be profiting more off of certain shows than those who created them. Wow. Which is probably why artists like Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda has fought scalpers so hard. In 2016, Congress passed a bill that outlawed ticket scalping bots, and Miranda was a big advocate of it. It's hard to get tickets to anything, but while you're typing in your CAPTCHA code, that bot has already got the ticket you're trying to get. And uh, it's just not fair. And, and we need to at least begin to level the playing field. What else have artists and venues tried? 
Big names like Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen have started using something called Verified Fan. This is the Ticketmaster program that people sign up for. Then they're invited to buy tickets for shows they're interested in. The idea is to create a system that allows Ticketmaster to evaluate if someone is a fan or a ticket broker. Hamilton on Broadway, for example, has signed up for this program. Other places are trying paperless tickets, which means at the theater you'd show up with your ID, the credit card you use to buy the ticket, and that's how you would be admitted into the event. But that, of course, has its own challenges. Right. Does any of this work? Well, people who watch this industry say these tactics might slow down a ticket scalper at first, but they usually find a way around them. It can also be difficult to determine someone's intentions just by digging into data. I spoke with Christian Hasold. He runs a blog called The Ticket Economist, and he's been following this market for more than a decade. I think their fans are actually a part of the problem. Um, The secondary ticket market has gotten so big, it's not just professional sellers. It's college students. It's stay-at-home mothers and stay-at-home fathers who, when they only need two, they buy four, and they sell the other two to pay for the other two tickets. A quick fun fact. He told me that some historians trace ticket scalping back to Elvis Presley concerts. To Elvis. Mm -hmm. What's the best way for artists to get ahead of the secondary market? So Hassel said a combination of bot protection software, ticket limits, examining customer data regularly, and these virtual waiting rooms can help. Some economists argue that too much blame is placed on the scalper. They say the secondary market exists because of really simple economics, scant supply and large demand. Hmm. Mark Perry teaches economics at the University of Michigan's Flint campus. He's also a scholar for the conservative-leaning American Enterprise Institute and has looked at ticket scalping. If people are willing to pay more than the kind of the arbitrary face value, then that seems perfectly you know, legitimate from an economic standpoint, just like if you had a rare coin and it was an old nickel and I would pay you a dollar, that's above the face value of the nickel, but I'm willing to pay it and we would never consider that coin scalping or when there's a hot housing market and sometimes houses are selling for above the list price, then that's not considered house scalping. You know, I read a number of other pieces written by economists who argue that the way to fix this is to raise prices increase the, and increase the supply. But venues like the Denver Center and Blumenthal Arts Center in Charlotte, which get public funds, really want to preserve those cheaper seats so that seeing a show can be as affordable as possible. And that the art is accessible to Mm -hmm. as many as possible. Okay, if you don't get your tickets to see Hamilton in Denver uh, already when they were on sale last month, are you just out of luck? Well, today the Denver Center announced its digital lottery for Hamilton tickets. So for every performance, there will be 40 $10 tickets available Alexander Hamilton is on the $10 bill, after all. (laughs) We'll link to that online. And the Denver Center also continues to scrutinize these transactions, so more tickets may become available. Thanks, Steph. Thank you. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf with a look at the resale ticket market and the challenges that presents for theaters like the Denver Center. The word got around and said this kid is insane, man. Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Get your education. Don't forget from whence you came. And the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. When she fled Nazi-occupied Europe, Marion Kreeth was just 14. It was 1941, and she and her family joined other Jewish refugees on a boat headed for Cuba. When they got to Havana, Kreeth found work polishing diamonds in a factory set up by other refugees. 
Cuba's wartime diamond industry is largely forgotten today, but it's the subject of a new documentary by Crete's daughter, Judy, and co-director Robin Truesdale. Their film Cuba's Forgotten Jewels, A Haven in Havana, has its Denver premiere at the Denver Jewish Film Festival, which is underway. And welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. So Judy, your mother, is one of the central figures in this film. She's 90, now living in Boulder. Uh, When did you first hear about her life in Cuba during the war? When I was a teenager, my mother would hint a little bit about her her experiences in Cuba. And uh, whenever she talked about it, I think I was about 17 at the time, and I wanted to just learn. Um, I was at that phase of being a teenager where I really wanted to hear everything about the Holocaust. It was sort of really gripping to me. And so it was at that time that she began to tell me a little bit about her travels to Cuba and her work in the diamond industry. What did she tell you? What details stood out to your your young brain then? Um, You know, she she, I think as as uh, as a Jewish refugee in Boulder at the time, there was a lot of dissonance around being uh, the feelings of being Jewish because she had such so much uh, she knew so much prejudice and and hard difficult times. But one thing she would always tell me, and it struck me as uh, being so clear, she would say the diamond industry in Havana. It was one of the few real win-win situations during the war. Win-win. What did she mean? I believe that her. Her, um, when she described that, it really was because uh, it was right coming out of the Depression. It was a time when people were very, very nervous about bringing refugees into into their country with the fear that those refugees would take jobs. And this is one industry where, due to a series of rules, um, this diamond industry employed 50% Cuban nationals and 50% refugees. So it was a way that both uh, both the refugees and the Cuban people could benefit from this industry. Interesting. Why don't we listen to a clip of your mother from this film? Life in Havana was a story unto itself, but the interesting part of the immigration to Cuba was that because many of the diamond uh, merchants had immigrated to Cuba. They were able to create an industry, a diamond industry, which benefited both the refugees and the Cuban people. Therefore, the win-win you were describing. You know, when I think of Cuba, I think cigars, music, maybe rum, certainly not diamonds. So, uh, Robin, how did the industry start up there? Well, a lot of the refugees that were coming over on the boats from Europe were from Belgium, from Antwerp, and some from Holland as well. And that's a very diamond-centered in um, place where the industry comes from. And so they brought their expertise and their connections, their merchant connections, and it was for them an opportunity to create jobs for their there are refugee people that, um, you know, were were here in this foreign country and had no work and no way to make money. So this was an industry they brought with them. Right. And that created work for later waves of immigrants coming, and refugees, I should say, uh, coming to Cuba to escape uh, the Nazi regime. What was it like working in these factories? Did you get a sense for that? I think... Um Many people um, had uh, 
on the one hand, as my mother remembers it as a win-win, but in her diary of that time, she talks about kind of the daily, the daily grind, you know, going to work every day, you know, being with the same people. There were, you know, there were many, there was teenagers working all together and they, they had a lot of the same teenage conflicts that teenagers have today with one day you're friends, one day you're not. I think one aspect that must have been very hard is that people say there was absolutely no air conditioning in these factories. Mm. And so the heat, especially during the summer, must have been just unbelievable because they all the machines were going um, they had fires that little little fires beside them that they needed to to do the polishing. So. What a change it must have been for your mother, who was just living as a typical teen before the war, to right. be thrust, I, I suppose, not a, only into a life on on the, the island of Cuba, but then into factory work. Right. Well, as, as my mother often mentioned to Robin and and myself during the interview process, she said. I never thought it was that strange until I came to the United States mm-hmm. and saw what teenagers here were thinking about clothes and boys and prom and going to school. And so she really uh, felt like it was fairly, she didn't really know anything else until she arrived in the States. And it's good to remember, too, that um, a lot of these young people gave up their education during this time. Mm. They they were not in school at that age. They were working. They might have been worse off, though, if they hadn't landed the kind of work that your mother landed, polishing diamonds. Right. Well, I know um, Marion has talked about how she helped support her family. I think that was true for a lot of these young people. Some of their older members of their families, their parents, it was very difficult for them. Um, but the young people were skilled and agile and had the you know ability to do the work and ended up falling to them to bring bring in the money for their families. So you traveled to Cuba to do some research and filming. Did you find any trace of the diamond business there? No, no physical trace, really. We asked a lot of people, and in fact, it's not even in the memory of the people of Cuba in the, for the most part. I think Judy might have found a few people who had some memory. There was, um, we spent, during my research, I, I went back to the different synagogues, to the different um, uh, Jewish communities that I thought would be able to share more information. Um, and they, they, um, often gave me books, books that were had been written in Miami, uh, books that had been researched somewhat with other with other um, historians. But right there in Cuba, it was almost impossible. What happened to the industry? Right after the war, Many of the um, the dreams were of these refugees were were to come to Cuba and spend a few weeks and then go as soon as they could get just a few visas. weeks. They thought they would be there. That's mm-hmm. the thought that my mother and many of the others thought they would get visas within a few weeks to go. Most of them wanted to go to the United States. That was sort of their their dream, their vision. But then Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. As soon as that happened. There was no way to go between the two countries. And so instead of only it being one one or a few weeks, they ended up staying in Cuba. And so, the, but the vision was always to leave after the war. And so many of them did. Yes. And, and took, in a way, the diamond business with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the, the government wa- um, insisted, the, you know, the, the Cuban government, 
the industry was a very was a very lucrative business for the Cubans as well. So they wanted to keep the industry, and they insisted that the uh, refugees keep all the machinery that had been made. Most of it had been actually made in Cuba, which is another incredible part of the story. But without the worldwide connections of the diamond merchants, the Cubans weren't able to keep the industry there in Cuba. In general, Robin, how welcome were the refugees by the Cuban people? They were fairly well um, welcomed. There was not a lot of anti-Semitism in Cuba, which was a, a wonderful surprise for these refugees who were you know, very fearful that they would be um, not welcomed at all. And they found that it was, it was a pretty wonderful place to be. It was tropical. It was warm. The people were much different in personality because of the weather and just the lifestyle was very vibrant. And I think it was a big surprise to see how those people were living and to be in that environment. Did refugees at all stay in Cuba and make a life there long term? I believe some of them did. And there's um, still a, a Jewish population in Havana and around other parts of Cuba. So there are people who have stayed there that came from other places. I think in general, the, the majority moved on to the U.S. Some returned to Europe after the war. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that their expectation was just to spend a few weeks in Cuba. Your mom wound up spending five years altogether. Correct. Uh, I mentioned to Judy that she is 90 now. How does she look back on those five years? I think that before we, uh, Robin and I, began the process of uh, interviewing, um, I, I think that they were largely somewhat in her past. And although she um, she, she she remembered mostly about the, the work and her friends in Havana, uh, she had a different memory. I mean, it was always a, 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 wait, a kind of a waiting station till the next stop. And then the more we interviewed and the more we asked her, I think slowly her memories of Havana have become um, much, much fonder, much warmer. And I think she is, uh, and many of the refugees have actually felt and realized that, uh, wow, Havana was an amazingly special place in their life. Especially thinking about what was happening, uh, where they came from. My goodness, the stark contrast. So I understand you had a screening of Cuba's Forgotten Jewels in Havana. We did in December. Um, Yes, we were in the Havana Film Festival. And it was an amazing experience to be able to bring this information back to the very source. And we had a wonderful reception there. Of course, the people of, of Cuba are very special, very amazing people. I, yeah. I wonder if your um, mother ever owned the kinds of diamonds that she polished. <laughs> My mother is, uh, she owns uh, one diamond ring that I know of that uh, has gone through a few gyrations. And her sister actually created a, created a band for her um, and... But but it's interesting because we're not really diamond people. I think okay. we're much simpler. <laughs> nice to meet you both. Thanks for Thank being you. with us. You heard Robin Truesdale and Judy Kreeth, co-directors of the documentary film Cuba's Forgotten Jewels, a haven in Havana. It screens this Sunday at the Denver Jewish Film Festival. More information about the film and the festival will be at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters.
Finally today, composer Peter Cater won this year's Grammy for Best New Age Album. Cater cut his teeth as a musician in Colorado. He was born in Germany and studied classical piano there since he was seven. At 18, he backpacked and hitchhiked across the United States and landed in Boulder. He played in that area over the years and shared the stage with John Denver and Dan Fogelberg. In 2016, Cater recorded an album that was entirely improvised with cellist Tina Guo. And here they are in the CPR Performance Studio, no sheet music, completely off the cuff. The cello taking on an almost animal-like quality at points there. So that's Grammy winner Peter Cater on piano with cellist Tina Guo, improvising in the CPR Performance Studio. Cater has won a Grammy for Best New Age Album. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Radio can be deceiving. It's just two people talking, right? But it takes a lot of effort to bring you the conversations we do. And our team, Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle B. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Stephanie Wolf, Rachel Estabrook, and the list goes on. You make that happen. <laughs>